We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except hearing or telling something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of all this, he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arab, the Arab Pagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Emmaus. If you don't know me, my name is Matthew Barrett. I'm one of the pastors here. And as always, it's a privilege to bring God's word for you, to you this morning from Acts 17. Make sure you have your Bibles open here because we will be spending much time in this chapter. Uh, This past summer, I guess summer is coming to an end now, isn't it? Uh, I was flying back uh, to Kansas City after doing some traveling. And I was sitting there and I overheard a conversation behind me between a woman and a man who did not know each other, but they discovered they had much in common. And, you know, as conversations do, you sort of move on. You don't want to eavesdrop too much. But then I couldn't help myself. 
Because as I was listening, she started to present the gospel to him. Now, at first, she asked him, have you heard the gospel? And he said, oh, yes, of course. But when she started to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ, afterwards, he was honest honest enough to say, I've never heard that. As I got off the plane, I was walking to get my bag, it really struck me as I started to reflect on my own life, I live in such a bubble, a Christian bubble, so enclosed in this Christian bubble that I forget, and maybe you resonate with this, that we live amongst a society, amongst neighbors and friends and coworkers who know very little, who perhaps could be even described as a post-Christian civilization. Does that make you a little, just a little uncomfortable? Some of you are saying, actually, it makes me a lot uncomfortable. I imagine you feel quite at home in the first half of Acts 17. You may may remember Paul and Silas meet up with the Jews in Berea who hear the gospel. They then check their study Bibles and they believe. But I imagine you feel more uncomfortable in the second half of Acts 17, our text this morning, where Paul enters Athens when he is invited to Mars Hill. He doesn't start with Jesus. In fact, if you look at the passage, he doesn't even use the name Jesus. He starts with those most basic building blocks of philosophy. Acts 17 and the world of Athens, I know, can feel very foreign to us today. But my hope this morning is after we do a little heavy lifting, you will discover, you may even be surprised to discover, this is very familiar to the world I live in. It may feel foreign at first, but friends, here is an opportunity to learn from the Apostle Paul. Because I fear if we don't learn from him, we can be very enthusiastic about our mission as Emmaus but fail in the end because we have not learned how to engage the world of ideas on the Mars Hill that we live in today with the whole revelation of God. So, since Paul engages these philosophers in Athens, let's follow Paul's lead. And in the spirit of those famous Greek plays and tragedies, let's use the play, the theater, as a guide. And so I'm going to give you three scenes, just three. I was tempted to give you ten, but we'll we'll stick to three scenes of this play. And I promise you, I promise you, we will come back to Acts 17. Okay, scene one, scene one. Let's go back to the golden age of Athens, over 400 years before Christ was born. And let's meet that most famous philosopher to whom everyone else after him is but a mere footnote. Do you know who I'm talking about? Plato, right? Plato. Plato was a student of Socrates who lived in a day very similar to ours when sophists roamed the land claiming there's no such thing as absolute truth, but truth is relative. Let's just focus on our rhetoric, how to persuade people of what we want. Socrates' stance for truth, in the end, cost him his own life. But his death, it inspired his student, Plato. Plato was somewhat of a genius in his own day. He used an illustration to describe and to try to understand reality as we know it. The illustration of a cave. Maybe you've heard it before. Imagine a cave in which inside a cave, there's a group of men who are staring at shadows dancing across the wall of the cave. But they think that these shadows are not shadows. They think they're real. They think they're reality. They don't realize that behind them are other men behind a wall raising up puppets in front of a fire to create these shadows. Well, these men 
who think this is reality, they go so far to even entertain themselves with these shadows, making bets, trying to see who's, who's the best expert on what the shadows will do next. But imagine, says Plato, if one of them got curious or suspicious. Imagine if one of the prisoners saw behind the shadows, behind where they were sitting, in fact, found his way out of the cave even, only to discover reality itself. The true sun shining in the sky, which it probably couldn't see at first after being in the darkness of the cave. What would happen if he then, in all of his joy, went back into the cave to tell the others? Well, Plato says they would mock him. In fact, they probably would kill him. How dare you disrupt our reality? To Plato, that man was Socrates. Plato believed that we are pilgrims in this world, which he called the world of becoming, a world of change. We apprehend the world by our senses. But we, he asked, are we, are we just matter? Or do we have form? Do we even have, say, a soul? Surely something more must exist beyond our senses, beyond matter itself. If this world is always becoming, always changing, it must be a shadow of what awaits us in the heavens, which he called a world of being, a world in which there is deity itself that does not change, but is absolutely complete and perfect. The good, the true, the beautiful that we see and experience around us, he said, these are but copies of those universals, the good, the beautiful, the truth. Plato called these forms. And the good, which was the ultimate form, he said, this must illuminate our, our mind's eyes so that, yes, even though we stumble around in the darkness, we can actually come into the light, arriving at a knowledge of that which is true. Ascending the ladder of goodness and truth and beauty until we experience the beatific vision itself. But if we give way to the lust of our flesh, we will never see God. Plato may have been the only one of his day to believe in a creator God who is the origin of all things. Plato criticized, in fact, even many of those mythological Greek gods because they were vulnerable in all kinds of ways, changing, even capable of being bribed. To Plato, he said, no, God must actually be a personal father who created out of love in order to bless you, to bless this world. His love never changes. It is steadfast. And since the Creator is life in and of Himself, it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. We participate in Him, he said. Other philosophers said, well, man must be the measure of all things. And Plato said, no, God is the measure of all things. Those who choose the way of wickedness, well, they will experience punishment in hell, while the just will be rewarded with life. Eventually, this became known as Platonism with all kinds of varieties. But if any of this sounds remotely similar to Christianity, well, then you've been listening. The most famous church father, Augustine, says in his confessions, he reflects on when he was not a Christian, and he was so seduced by all kinds of false philosophies. When he saw Christianity for the first time, he thought, this is absurd. But when he then read some of these Platonists, as he calls them, this was a path on which he then converted to Christianity. Because for all of their flaws, and Augustine was not shy to point them out, but for all of their flaws, they at least gave him true categories to actually understand the God of the Bible. Augustine actually took it further and said, well, these forms 
could these actually just exist in the mind of God, his, his own intellect? And so Augustine plundered the Egyptians on his way to the Holy Land. Of course, Augustine understood that this thought, what we're calling Platonism, had to be refined, to be redeemed into the service of Christianity, because by itself it was seriously flawed. Just think of one example. Without access to the scriptures, Plato, well, he tried to explain the origin of the soul by pre-existence in this world of being. So the body then became a barrier to the soul's ascent to seeing God. And so Plato did not have a category for resurrection. That would have been strange to his ears. Only reincarnation. He did believe we have a sinful nature, but he defined salvation more as recollection than redemption. In the decades ahead, other philosophers bucked against this. They bucked against Plato and Platonism. In other words, they cut with scissors. Imagine a a beautiful tapestry in which you cut the cord of our participation in God, between the creator and the creature, severing themselves from these basic building blocks, so central in different ways to both Platonism and Christianity. Is it any surprise that in Acts 17, Paul encounters two of them, the Stoics and the Epicureans? So let's now move to scene two. Scene two, the Stoics. Over 300 years before Christ, there was a man named Zeno, or Zeno, who started his own school of philosophy that we today call Stoicism. The Stoics bucked against those Platonists we just described. They said, there are no universals. There's no meaning in the things that we see. Meaning is just words about collected individuals, persons, objects. The things that we see have no necessary participation in something grand, something bigger, something universal. It is what we make of it. We decide. Now, as you can tell, saying that there must be something universal that transcends what we see, transcends our senses, what we touch, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste. Well, the Stoics said, your sense perception, that is the origin of your knowledge. It's even the standard of truth. One's senses must convince your soul then of what's real. So they did not believe in God, but they said God is material. Since they explained the stuff of the world, the stuff of our world, by the existence of, say, fire, they thought God must be a primal fire, the soul of the world. They had a catchy little ring to it that went like this. All are are but parts of one stupendous whole whose body nature is, and God the soul. You see, the Stoics are what we would call monists. All are but parts of one whole. And they were materialists, whose body nature is, and God the soul. The the consequences of this outlook were many. Consider one. A question, is the resurrection of the dead real? Well, they said, your soul might like to think so. How nice. But our senses tell us that when things die, they stay dead. And at death, the soul is burned up by that primal fire. Scene three, Paul engages and meets the Epicureans. Stoicism was not the only school that was popular 
in the third century, there was a man named Epicurus who traveled to Athens, and he too opened his own school. But the Epicureans, as they were called, they were not so positive, though tolerant, not so positive about the gods of popular religion. Yes, they exist, but they don't concern themselves with you and your daily affairs. So, why are you worrying all the time? Why are you trying to appease them? Why do you fear them? We should not fear them, nor should we even fear death itself. Because immortality, well, that is superstitious. The universe came into existence, they said, when atoms just collided. Does this sound familiar? When atoms just collided in the void of space. So, stop pretending. You are just atoms. In fact, even your soul is but atoms. Your sense perception, then, is everything. The most foundational criteria for truth. Governing your reason. What is death? Well, death is simply the removal of your senses. It is, in a word, annihilation. And what is the world but a machine that has no ultimate final purpose? You can imagine this irritated the Stoics. In fact, they went so far to say that even the gods are atoms, a lot like us. The difference is they have mastered a state of serenity and peace. We have no reason to fear them. We should just try to imitate them and arrive at peace ourselves. Now, I promised you we would return to Acts 17. But this little play, these three scenes, are crucial to understand what Paul is about to say next. So look with me at Acts 17, verse 16. We know from verse 16 that Paul was provoked when he encountered the many idols that he saw in Athens. He was deeply distressed by their polytheism, to the point even of anger. But Paul is very prudent, isn't he? He adopts the spirit of their heritage. And like Socrates, he enters into their world and reasons with them. Like Socrates, he is viewed also with, super, with suspicion because he too is a teacher of something new, something strange. He too withholds this critique that he's about to get, about to give. And instead he says, let me put my foot first on a common ground by recognizing that yes, you are very religious. In fact, you're so religious that you've erected altars as centers of worship. And Paul knows. You've been created in the image of God. It's not a matter of whether you will worship, but how you will worship, when you will worship, and whom you will worship. Those in Athens are so devoted to worship that they even erect an altar, look at verse 23, to an unknown God, knowing their ignorance could potentially condemn them. Paul is so strategic, isn't he? He capitalizes on this inscription to say, what you call unknown, what you do not know, I will make known to you. It's bold, very bold. But Paul doesn't begin, maybe to your shock, he does not begin by quoting the Hebrew Scriptures like he was known to do in the past. Well, we've seen that, haven't we, from time to time in the book of Acts as he approaches the Jews. Instead of quoting the book of Scripture, Paul turns and looks to another book, the book of nature, 
a book in which God has revealed himself. Friends, this is simply called natural revelation. And you are very familiar with it. Think of Psalm 19. Before David introduces the beauty and perfection of the law of God, he turns to the creation and he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Notice his language. They declare it. They shout it. It's a megaphone of God's glory. The sky above, it proclaims his handiwork as a craftsman, as the creator. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals, reveals knowledge to you. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And then David uses his reasonable observation to detect how God has revealed himself through this natural order. He looks at the sun and all of its radiance and talks about how it speaks to us of God's imprint. You see, David exemplifies what we call natural theology when he compares creation to a voice that speaks, making the knowledge of God public to everyone under the sun. That raises a question, doesn't it? What exactly does God say about himself through this natural revelation around us? Well, natural revelation does not reveal God as Trinity or the incarnation, for example. That is the purpose of supernatural revelation. But that doesn't mean that natural revelation is useless simply because it is not designed to save. Natural revelation manifests itself in a very unique way. It shows us God's existence. He does exist. It shows us God's perfections, his attributes, and it manifests his caring providence. This is just a side note, but you've seen this. If you remember back to the sermon on Acts 14, Paul talks a lot about God's providence in order to show them their idolatry and their need for the true and living God. The point is, all of this serves many good purposes, both for the unbeliever and for the believer. But let's consider the unbeliever, because that is whom Paul is engaging here in Acts 17. First, notice how it holds them accountable to what can be known about God in and through the created order. It even serves to condemn. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes much of this when he says, for what can be known, listen to this, listen to this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. So you are without excuse. Without excuse. Paul's not talking merely about Adam and Eve before the fall. No, As John Calvin, the reformer, said, Paul declares here quite obviously that God made a knowledge of his majesty flow down into the spirits of men. All men, in fact. He has shown himself so much by his works that they are forced to see that which they do not seek by themselves. That is, that there is a God. But there's a second purpose of natural revelation, and as we saw with David in Psalm 19, natural theology. It does not merely condemn, but listen to this, it prepares the way for a Savior. It prepares the way. By unveiling God as creator, the path is paved for God not just as our Lord and Creator, but as our Savior. 
This should, it should sit well with us as Bible readers. For this is how the Bible begins in Genesis. And it's also how Paul in Acts 17 pursues his listeners. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul asserts that God is the Lord of heaven and earth, and therefore he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Oh, how this must have rocked the Stoics. Remember, they reduced our experience to our sense perception. They bucked against those Platonists. They even denied that there are particular objects in this world that participate in anything grand, anything universal, anything true. They conflated the creator and the creature, making God material. And then Paul drops a philosophical bomb on their sophisticated, naturalistic, materialistic, intellectual playground. God is not the soul of nature. He is the creator who is life in and of himself. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. You may remember our series on the attributes of God in which Pastor Joseph preached on God's aseity. This is it. God's aseity puts creation in proper perspective, doesn't it? Since he needs nothing, he can create a world out of nothing. Creation out of nothing so often as Christians, we affirm this. We have no idea why. why. Why do we believe this? Creation out of nothing is a generous display of the freedom of his goodness. We do not give him life, but we depend on and participate in his life. You see, behind Paul's argument are several very classical ancient assumptions. The apostle can move from the contingency of our world to a being, a God who is absolutely necessary. He can move from all of the causation we see around us to someone who is the first cause. One who has not caused himself and therefore can be the source, the sustenance of all of our life. He alone can be enjoyed for his own sake. And you can say that of nothing else in this world. You think the Epicureans, you think they're listening at this point? I hope so. Look at verses 26 through 28. Their ears must have perked up next. Remember, the Epicureans said the cosmos is just atoms, the gods included. And these gods, remember, they have no interest in you. They don't care about you. They're too busy feasting life, your life. It has no final, ultimate, telos, purpose, appointed end. But Paul, what does Paul do? Paul counters with another very classical ancient argument. And he says, look at the world around you. Look at its order, its ordered finality. How can this not come from a God who is all wise in his understanding, in his wisdom. If God is life 
in and of Himself, if He is that complete, says Paul, then we depend on Him not only for our existence, but for our sustenance. Verse 26 through 28, God created Adam, and from Adam all the nations of the earth. But here is the Christian God. He doesn't stop there. He continues. He doesn't remove himself, but in his providential care for you, he structured, he sustained humanity across the entire earth. The gods of Athens, they are, yeah, you hold them in your hand, but they are distant from you. They are lifeless. The God of Christianity, this is a God who is so alive so pure in his life, so infinite in his being, that he can even be imminent. Thanks to his providential presence, humanity, we can feel our way toward him, says Paul, and find him. But did you notice how Paul, look at verse 28, how Paul even goes further if God is not only the, the creator and the sustainer, well, he is also not far from each and every one of us. Yet rather than quoting the scriptures, notice Paul appeals to their own Greek heritage. This is so counterintuitive. Though what he's about to say is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament. Look at verse 28. Verse 29. In Him we live and move and have our being. We are indeed His offspring. It's as if Paul glances over at the Stoics. And then he turns his head over to the Epicureans and says... Don't you dare cut the cord of participation with God. And, and you should know better. Did you notice? Look at your Bible. He is quoting, not the scriptures, he is quoting their own heritage. Their own Greek fathers affirmed the, crea the creature's participation and the total dependency on the creator. Paul is essentially saying to them, you have ancestors going back, way back, all the way to Plato, who understood that creation points beyond itself to a creator on whom you depend. Your very existence, the very life, the very breath in your lungs, you should know better. Paul sees their skepticism, their naturalism, their relativism. And you know what? Can we not relate today? I love what C.S. Lewis said, and he looked at all of these in the 20th century. C.S. Lewis said something very provocative. He said, I often find that as I'm interacting with naturalists and skeptics and relativists, I have to reconvert them back to the paganism of the ancient times, Plato perhaps, so that they can even understand, let alone appreciate, and possibly be intrigued by Christianity. Isn't Paul's strategy, C.S. Lewis is not Unique, is he? Paul's strategy is quite similar, isn't it? Look at what he's doing here. He is quoting Epimenides of Crete. He's also quoting one of the Greek poets, Aratus, and a very famous poem that everyone there would have known. I suppose it was like a Taylor Swift song. Everybody knew this poem. Everybody knew it. But here's the thing. In the poem, 
It's actually addressed to Zeus. I imagine that makes you now extremely uncomfortable. Paul, what are you doing? You see, Paul does not hesitate to retrieve, to redirect, to reappropriate the truth embedded in those words to their proper source. Paul takes them to the truth at the core of their own heritage, their own Greek philosophy, only to raise them up, higher up, higher in, lifting them out of their idolatry to face the true and living God they should be worshiping, the unknown God. Why is this so strategic? Now that the truth that they possess in their own Greek heritage is out, they're ready to hear news that will either condemn them or prepare them for what's next. Look at verses 29 through 31. Paul delivers a one-two punch, doesn't he? First, he strikes at the Stoics. God is not a needy idol. He's not an idol made of gold, silver, stone that possesses the deity of the God you are worshiping. Then he turns and strikes at the Epicureans. Their belief in annihilationism. Paul says, no, the uncreated creator, the uncaused cause, he has not left himself without witness. And so he will not tolerate you ignoring him, suppressing him in your ignorance when all of creation around you is a theater of his glory. You cannot hide from it. You cannot manipulate this. A day of judgment is coming. Immortality, it is not a hoax. You Epicureans, you should fear death. And what proof, Paul, what proof are you going to give for this bold, strange, new teaching? Look at verse 31. He has raised a man from the dead, the same man by whom he will judge the world in righteousness. Isn't it fascinating that Paul does not even mention yet the name of Jesus? He doesn't have to. Naming the resurrection is cause enough for them to stumble. Now, this is a pivotal moment at the end of this encounter. Prior to mentioning the resurrection, even the purest forms of Greek philosophy would not have disagreed with Paul. As two New Testament scholars have said, Paul's language is based on the Old Testament description of God for sure, but what he said would have also been accepted by the Greek philosopher Plato. And then Paul makes a strategic move. What about the resurrection? You see, now this new teaching, not even the Platonists would agree to. You see, Socrates, the Socrates in Paul, is coming out. He has set them up by affirming a creator on whom their participation depends. A providential Lord who has established justice and righteousness in the world. Paul now pulls back the curtain. This same creator has appointed a man to judge the living and the dead in righteousness. The proof? A tomb is empty. Emmaus, does this give us any strategies for our mission here in Kansas City? I think it does. And so we close by mentioning just a few. It might feel daunting to realize, friends, that we are living in the Areopagus. We are on Mars Hill today, far more than Berea. Verse 32, some are going to mock you. You know that, I hope. You will be mocked. But notice how this story ends. Others said, we 
Not just we want to hear more, we, we will hear more from you, Paul. You see, the advantage of living in a day like ours is that however outrageous we may sound, people, some people, are there to listen. And that means we need to be as serious as the apostle about the life of the mind. Friends, your elders at Emmaus, we do not dare insult you and your intelligence. This pulpit, the residency, the institute, the women's Bible study studies coming up, community groups, shall I go on? We are not just playing around with these. These are here for you. They are dedicated to equip you for this very moment. And I'm not just speaking to those of you here who are intellectually minded. I don't care if you are in seminary, if you are in science. I don't care if you work in a bank or a construction site. I don't care if you are changing oil or changing diapers. Mars Hill is here, and it's with you wherever you are. So friends, that mission then doesn't start when you leave the doors. It starts in here with a pencil in hand. A second application and strategy. This mission requires you to move beyond just quoting Bible verses to people out there. Now don't mishear me. You do need to open the book of Scripture with them. But on Mars Hill, you may need to open the book of nature first. You cannot assume they have heard the gospel, but you cannot even assume they believe in a creator anymore. And even if they do believe in a creator, you cannot assume they understand that this creator is distinct from the creature. That is the world we live in. If you are unable to establish who God really is, then why are you surprised when those around you domesticate him, when they turn him into a version of themselves? And more to the point, if you do not begin with the independence of our creator so that they understand how they have not only defied him, but their own nature, exposing the way that they have cut their participation in this God, then they will never fear the coming judgment, let alone feel their desperation for a Savior. And last, friends, if we are living on Mars Hill, Mars Hill, yes, it is daunting, but it is only daunting if you think that you, you are the key. Did you not see how this passage ends? Isn't it beautiful? Hope. The difference between you and everyone else entering into your Areopagus, your Mars Hill, is this. You, friends, have the Holy Spirit. And that makes all the difference. You can handle them mocking you. I know you don't feel like it, but you can. Because as you give reasons for the Creator, as you warn them against the day of judgment to come, the Spirit is at work within to open blind eyes to see that there is a tomb empty. Yes, some mocked, but Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others believed. Friends, never forget that the Gentile philosophers from the East follow God's star in the sky and it led them to a manger to bow before the king of kings. And now from Athens to Kansas City, God's mission to the Gentiles advances. And you have the privilege of being part of that mission. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. So often we are lazy. I am lazy. I am so lazy when it comes to those around me. Lord, equip us, strengthen us so that we can bear witness to you as our creator, 
as our caring, providential Lord and lead others to salvation in a risen and resurrected Christ. Lord, let us, give us the privilege of being part of this mission today. Amen. Friends, we come to this table, and this table is a statement for those living on Mars Hill in the Areopagus. You have been told, yes, let's just cut that cord of participation with God. And we've been told to pride ourselves on our own independence. Friends, you don't even have to think about it. It's everywhere. As if we no longer live and move and have our being in him. Wasn't this the serpent's plan from the very beginning? Telling our parents, you can name reality whatever you want, whatever you please. And by eating, they severed that tapestry of participation. Another word for that is just sacrament. They severed it. They removed, they were removed from the very, the very presence of God. Friends, I stand next to this table today with good news for you. The creator is now your savior. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Emmaus, if you have thrown out your idols as the true offspring of the living God and turned to Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I invite you to this meal because we have a promise in this meal. At this table, the Holy Spirit, who made you a new creation, raises us up with Christ to enjoy communion. If you are here this morning and what I am saying sounds like a strange, new, foreign teaching to you. We love you. We're so glad you're here. We want to reason and talk with you, but stay in your seat because you have not believed in Christ who died and rose again. Friend, you await a day of judgment, but that does not have to be the last word. Emmaus, you'll come down the aisle to your side and approach the table. Come, eat, and be grateful. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.